Hello everyone, welcome once again to A Reason for Hope. We're so glad that you're joining us, whichever platform you've found us on. We're glad that you're out there. A Reason for Hope, in case you're not familiar, is an hour-long live broadcast. We are streaming live on multiple platforms. And we're guided along by your questions on the Bible. You can send in your questions to us through various ways, which I'll go over in just a moment. Um, we have uh, some guests here who love the Lord. They love the Word. They love to connect you with the the Word via your questions and uh, to help you kind of be guided along uh, with your study in the Word as well. So if you have questions, could be a verse or passage of Scripture that's confused you, you'd like explained a little bit more, maybe even something you're going through a situation you're in, you'd like to know what's a biblical perspective on it uh, to help you along, maybe even just Christianity as a whole, you may be a seeker and have questions about what the Bible says, uh, you know, the world, the universe and everything, any biblical question that you have, as long as it's an honest question, as long as you know that uh, we are going to use the Bible to find the answers, that's what we are about here, a reason for hope, so we're very glad for your questions, we're glad that you're joining us, my name is Dave Robson, I'm your host today, I'll be Checking all those platforms as we go along as your questions come in. With us today on this uh, Wednesday, November 29th, we have Pastor Scott Richards, who's the senior pastor here at Calvary Christian Fellowship, where we're streaming from. How you doing? Fantastic. Yeah? Yeah. Good to see you. Yeah, I've just been uh, knee-deep in the book of Ezekiel all day. Yeah. That's we're, a mind-blower, yeah. especially the section we're in. Yeah, we're going to be studying that tonight for our service. Yeah, we are, oh, yes. as a matter of fact. And some really interesting insights into uh, worship. And, uh, you know, we, we often hear about entering into God's gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. But, um, you know, oftentimes I think we fail to realize that worship is more than a feeling. It's a uh, destination. Mm. It's us coming from where we are and drawing near to God. Mm. And I think there's some really profound insights in terms of how this last days, uh, thousand-year reign of Christ temple that is going to be set up and how worship is going to be conducted in this temple that can really go a long way uh, towards uh, possibly revolutionizing the way we look at our worship experience in our day and age. So well, really some really neat, neat insights yeah, in there. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. Along with all the cubits and furlongs and rods and staffs. <laughs> all those things, yes, too. That we, we don't find all that comforting from yeah. a mathematical point of view. Yeah, absolutely. Yep, yeah, cubit. Here, here it is. This is, a, this is a, a, you know what? This is not just a cubit. But you know what else is really neat about this? You see this little hand on the top of it? This is a hand breadth. And uh, in oh. the book of Ezekiel, the measurements for the, the temple that will be built during the thousand-year reign of Christ weren't just the standard cubit, which would be this, right, from here to here, Whoops. from here yeah. to here, <laughs> but it would also have the hand breadth attached to it. Ah. So this is a very interesting visual aid that we wow. have here. So. And it also allows me to keep Sean in line. Yeah, it's also a good discipline stick. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is a full occupation. Yeah. Yes, it is, yeah. So, but there yeah. you go. So so again, um, after the uh, the broadcast, Reason for Hope, uh, we're with you for an hour, then at 6.30, that's about 30 minutes after we come off of this stream, we'll be going live again for our Wednesday night service here at Calvary Christian Fellowship and in the book of Ezekiel. So as Pastor Scott was mentioned, if that uh, 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 piqued your interest, then you can join us again or come on down if you're in the, the Tucson Arizona area. With us today, Pastor, uh, what's your name? Sean Richards. <laughs> what's your name? <laughs> We've done Scott already, yes. the senior, the, now the junior. The elder. Sean, yeah. Can I see your ID, please? Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> check, check, your, check your tag, your label at the back. How you doing, Sean? 
My stomach cries out for vindication, but other than that, I'm fine. <laughs> it's not like I've introduced you like most days for the last year or so, but, you know, senior, senior moment. I was going to say Scott Richards. We did him already. Yes, father, son, in, in case you uh, didn't realize. Although I do get uh, <clears throat> regularly commented on that when people listen on the radio, sometimes they're not sure. When I've started, when I stopped speaking and yeah. started... And we've also gotten complaints about the horrible things that you've said on the radio, and I think that was actually me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's plausible deniability built into the system. Oh, I never say anything like that. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I have no shame. Yeah. Almost like twins, you can do some of those little uh, trickeries and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah so um, thank you both for being uh, here with us and for um, your faithfulness to this ministry. It's certainly very beneficial. As I mentioned, Reason for Hope, we're with you Monday through Friday, 5 to 6 p.m. We're always live uh, with you those times. It's an outreach of Calvary Christian Fellowship here in Tucson, Arizona, as I mentioned as well. Our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, is a great place to go, a great home base for you to watch us live there. And of course, anything going on uh, here at Calvary Christian Fellowship, you can find information um, there. And if you're in the Tucson, uh, Tucson, Arizona area, and you would like to come check us out, you're more than welcome. As I mentioned, we have a service tonight, 6.30 p.m. We're near Prince and I-10 on the west side of the freeway, about a block uh, north from the exit there on the west side. You can come along and join us by all means, and on Sundays too. But calvarychristianfellowship.com, you can get more information there. But on that Watch Live tab, if you click on that, you'll, you'll go out to our live page where we're streaming live right now. You can sign in with a username of your choice and uh, send us your questions. And when we're offline, you'll see a schedule of upcoming events and you'll see a countdown to our next event as well so you can see anything upcoming that we have going on uh, ccftucson.online.church is the direct link you can type that right into your browser ccftucson.online.church will take you to that same place as the link at calvarychristianfellowship.com as well we're on facebook as well calvary christian fellowship on facebook we're streaming live there facebook.com slash ccftucson don't forget to like and share. We'd appreciate that. And you can send your question in through that uh, method as well on the chat function. I'll be checking those. I don't believe we're doing uh, an update today, so we have lots of time for your questions. Send them on in. Uh, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson in your app store as well. We have an app for your mobile device. You can watch us there live. You can also look at past uh, messages and archives, see upcoming events. You can even sign up for things. You can also give through our app as well. So it's a great uh, tool there for you. We are on YouTube live as well. A Reason for Hope is the name of the channel on YouTube. It's a great place for archives as well. If you missed a show or you just loved it so much, you want to watch it again and again, that live tab, anytime we've been live, it will archive there for you so you can can look back at past shows, I believe. Um, Sean puts the questions that we covered on there, so a little bit more information so you can navigate. I've been better at putting the questions up on the screen as well, so you can scrub through the video and find the, uh, the question that interests you, should you want to use that as a study tool as well. So a reason for hope on YouTube. Don't forget to like and subscribe, and there's that notification bell if you'd like to be notified when we are live as well. Pastor Scott's on Twitter here. It's a great uh, kind of immediate way to get updates, certainly right now with everything going on in Israel and the Middle East. Uh, he kind of uh, comments and commentates on uh, uh, news goings on as they pertain to biblical prophecy and end times and those kind of things, kind of a biblical reaction to those things. So Scott RFRH on Twitter. If you're on Twitter yourself, you can follow along with him. We're on Rumble as well, not live, but we post video content there, a reason for hope, Bible Q&A 
on Rumble if you're on that platform. And then questionsforhope at gmail.com is our uh, email address, questionsforhope spelled out at gmail.com. You can send us your question there as well. You'll want to use that email address if you're listening to us on the radio. We're glad you're there, but we're not live with you. You're listening to the last show that we did pre-recorded. I'm speaking to you from the past. Um, so, but questions for email, uh, questions for email, questions for hope at gmail.com. It's going to be a long night. Um, you can send us your question there, and we'll try to get to that on our next show. And keep in mind, there's other platforms are live, so consider joining us there as well. So, with all that being said, whatever platform you're on, send your questions on in. And um, do we want to talk a little bit about the event we have coming up, talking of the Middle East and Israel? Um, we have a conference coming up in January. Um, I have a little graphic here for you. Pastor Scott, you want to say a couple of comments about that? Yeah. Uh, the uh, first thing you'll see on uh, the left-hand side, that is Ronnie Simone. He is a tour guide par excellence, almost legendary in tour guiding circles as far as uh, Israel is concerned. Retired colonel in the IDF, and as you can see, he doesn't suffer fools gladly. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. He's <laughs> yeah. really, he does have, make a joke, uh, too, about his funny accent. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, he's a wonderful, wonderful guy. We're really excited about having him out on uh, January 19th and 20th. It's going to be a conference uh, that we're putting on. Uh, Israel comes to you. Uh, we call it in understanding Israel because it's not just Ronnie doing a, uh, a video augmented, uh, if you will, uh, version of a tour of Israel that he will give you. This will be what we'll do on Saturday during our sessions. But on Friday evening, if there's ever a guy who can deliver, uh, boy, ground zero, uh, impeccable uh, connections as far as what is really happening in Israel, the Middle East, the uh, war with Gaza. Uh, it has got to be Ronnie. Uh, just uh, amazing insight there. So he's going to be speaking on that. I'm going to be speaking uh, on uh, a uh, New Testament perspective on Israel. Uh, why should we be concerned about Israel at all? And uh, we talk about the rise of, uh, of anti-Semitism. We talk about uh, what's called replacement theology in the church that says that uh, the Israel of today has no significance in God's plan, mm. uh, that God is finished with the Jewish people, that the only way you can relate to him is uh, by being a part of the church, and that God doesn't have uh, anything left to do with the Jewish people. Well, we would vehemently uh, disagree with that. In fact, I did my master's thesis on Romans 9 through 11, uh, which I think puts to bed that kind of thinking once and for all. So we're going to talk uh, a bit about uh, Romans chapter 11 in specific, about the glorious future that God has for Israel, what our attitude should be towards the Jewish people, uh, how we can, in a sense, position ourselves to be the best ambassadors for uh, their Messiah, Jesus, Yeshua, as they would call him in, in Hebrew. Uh, to the Jewish people. So we're very, very excited about all of that, and we're going to be uh, taking signups for this. The attendance, yep. as we say, is limited. Uh, so uh, don't be on the outside looking in. Make plans to be involved with all of that. Uh, as you can see, uh, there is a, uh, a fee that is going to be charged to attend, but you get uh, two full days of great content, uh, and uh, the uh, it, the uh, money that is involved here goes to uh, helping pay for Ronnie's accommodations. He's bringing his wife along. Can't wait to meet her. Oh, good. Uh, we're we're look, really looking forward to that. Yeah, that's great. Uh, and, uh, you know, to uh, be able to uh, compensate him in a way where the workman's worthy of his wages. 
uh, really uh, excited uh, about having that come up. Yeah. So, so again, it's coming up in January. The, the, the signups are open, just opened up today. You can go to calvarychristianfellowship.com. You'll see on the scrolling banner at the top, one of the banners is, um, is uh, the, a graphic. You can click on that and that will take you to where you can sign up. You can find it on our app as well. So sign on up. That's certainly a good deal. I'm sure there'll be food involved and all kinds of things. We're figuring out the, the specific schedule, but you definitely want to see it. When he came out, it was a couple, well, a couple of years ago, several years ago now. I'm trying to remember when it was. Did a conference, man. He is, like you said, uh, just a yeah. He did a the Israel. Well of, he did the Israel comes to you where he, well, right. he was just developing. And he did a wonderful picture of the history yeah. of Israel. Just an amazing teacher, written a, a number of scholarly books on that subject. Uh, Give us a king is one of them that I think is uh, required reading if you really want to understand the background and history of Israel. Yeah. Fantastic fantastic uh, resource so we are so blessed that he's going to be out there so yep. uh, you don't have to be a part of calvary christian fellowship to be a part of it uh you can sign up uh, online and okay. uh, make sure you reserve your spot and yep. uh, we're really looking forward to starting the new year off yep. uh just uh, hitting the ground running with uh, that wonderful conference absolutely absolutely well why don't we pause to pray before we go any further and we can jump into some questions i can check what questions have come in i know we have a couple that have Come in already from our email address, but Sean, would you like to pray for us? Absolutely. That'd be great. And thank you that we have the chance to be here. We want to invite you to be here as well so that what's shared is actually meaningful. Allow your word to speak for itself and your name to be honored, given the testimony that we read therein. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Now, I'm going to be brief about this. Yeah. Just a couple of heads up. No, sure. Uh, right now, we're sort of in a lull as far as what's going on in Israel right now. Uh, there, there, there has been the ceasefire in place with the piecemeal release of hostages. There were another 10 that were released earlier along this line. But it appears that there is uh, something gumming up the works. Hamas is now uh, claiming that they're having a hard time finding out where uh, the hostages are, which I think is fairly ridiculous. Israel has uh, responded uh, by saying that they are going to resume uh, their operation to defeat Hamas militarily in the morning if uh, the uh, list of abductees is not delivered to Israel by tonight. So be praying, obviously, uh, that that would happen. Uh, you know, uh, again, the Jerusalem Post is running an article where Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, is preparing to restart the war as the pause ends. A lot of pressure from the United States. Anthony Blinken, our secretary of state, has suggested that there be a four-day uh, extension of uh, the uh, ceasefire uh, in order to try to facilitate the return of as many uh, hostages as possible. doesn't appear that Israel is, go is too uh, germane about that, especially in light of the fact that today there were three IEDs, improvised explosive devices, that uh, went off uh, and uh, created injury to some IDF members that Hamas had planted. So uh, when is a ceasefire not a ceasefire? Uh, when Hamas decides uh, to do it, I guess it's still a ceasefire, even though you're uh, you know, causing injury to Israeli uh, troops. Uh, military censor uh, apparently has been threatened with removal by uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. We are not sure exactly why on those details. A uh, very interesting individual who uh, we did an interview with uh, here on A Reason for Hope, Masab Hassan Youssef. Uh, he is the son of Hamas co-founder Sheikh Hassan Youssef. 
He has called for Israel to set a time limit for the terrorist group to release the remaining hostages it is holding and to kill all of the leaders of Hamas, including his own father, if they fail to do so. So mm. um, uh, <laughs> we would say that Mossab, who uh, has a book called Son of Hamas, which is very, very interesting reading. You want to find out exactly why he turned away from being literally uh, in Hamas royalty. Uh, to leave. He lives in San Diego now. Some back and forth about where he stands as far as his uh, uh, relationship with Christ. Haven't been able to really confirm or deny any of that, but... uh, We're just glad he's not presently kidnapping, raping, and beheading children. Exactly, exactly. And uh, boy, you talk about someone who takes a hard line on these things. Mossad certainly does. So you might want to read about that. Uh, Go to the uh, JerusalemPost.com. and uh, take a look at that article. Fascinating insights he's got. Yeah. Thank so there you. you go. Yeah. Appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, well, I have a question from Tom. This was actually left over from yesterday. Apologies that we didn't get to it, but uh, it was a question actually from uh, an atheist friend of Tom's. Do we all serve and worship the same God, no matter what we call him? Great question and common question. Are all gods the same, just by different names? Well, George Harrison would tell you that's true. Right. I remember his famous song, My Sweet Lord. Uh, that was the gist of it, was that uh, no matter what you called God, we're all talking about the same yeah. uh, entity. All religious rivers flow to that one great ocean, which is God. Maybe you've heard that analogy before. Uh, maybe you've heard uh, the uh, Rudyard Kipling uh, ditty that he put together about the blind men and the elephant who went to see the elephant uh, so that by observation they could satisfy their mind. One of the blind men grabbed the trunk of the elephant and said the elephant's like a snake. One of them grabbed one of the legs of the elephant and said, no, it's like a tree stump. Another felt the side of it and said, no, an elephant's like a wall. Another grabbed the tail and said, no, it's like a rope. Uh, All were partly in the right and all were in the wrong. Uh, And so a lot of people have said that uh, all different religions are like the blind man and the elephant were just emphasizing one point of the great divine beyond all this. So Sean, where does that analogy fall apart? Giving the most basic respect and decency for what those blind men, quote unquote, are actually claiming about said God, because while they do, in the parable at least, have some characteristics that can all fit into the one truth that is there's an elephant in front of you, if one says, no, this is and can only be something that an elephant isn't, then one of them is right. None of them are right, but they can't all be right. So, for example, if we call God by the name Hashem, for instance, uh, the modern-day Judaism uh, perspective, the Orthodox Judaist community specifically, they would de-emphasize the nature of the Trinity, despite that coming from their Tanakh. They would de-emphasize God's role in any nation beyond that of Israel, and, of course, they would emphasize to the nth degree the idea of ceremony and observation of ritual as the sole means of producing righteousness, once again, despite their Tanakh saying otherwise. Now, when you say that apart from Judaism, that you cannot know Hashem, the name, which is literally how they emphasize, and I give them credit to this much, respect out of the uh, true and living God, then they would say, okay, then our all nations welcome into the system when they claim that Hashem is only available and that salvation is alone through these Jewish principles and ceremonies? Obviously not. You look at their Muslim neighbors and then you ask, okay, does Hashem go by the generic name Allah? 
which is just the God, not even a name or moniker. And noting that Allah identifies the Hebrew people not as the sole means of salvation, but the worst in enmity against the believers, that he has no love for non-believers, whereas Hashem does. When Allah claims that he not only hates non-believers, but also specifically singles out Jews and Christians to be for the hellfire, because they claim that Ezra is the son of Allah and that Christ is the son of Allah. Well, I didn't get that memo. Neither did they. <laughs> but one of these things does not belong. One of these things is not like the other. Allah would claim to be the only God. Hashem would claim to be the only God. The same for Yahweh. But now let's get into the nations of the world. We look at individuals like Zeus. Does Zeus claim to be the one and only God like Allah, Hashem, and Yahweh do? No, no, he in fact is one of many and is responsible for the production of many because in their view, the Greek pagans, they would view a god as essentially as a more powerful man, which Allah, Hashem, and Yahweh is certainly not. Now, if we then take them at face value and ask, oh, well, someone who's worshiping Yahweh can also be worshiping Zeus. There are fundamental things that are different from the two of them. We go up north to our ancestors and the Norse pagans. Do we note that there is a similarity between Odin and Zeus? Not only in what they represent, but also in how they characterize themselves? Definitely. While they have in common certain superficial things like polytheism, the belief in many gods, that they're just personifications and embodiments of more powerful humans, some would even say just aspects of nature, like wisdom, for instance, and Odin, then they would turn that over in Zeus and say, no, it's not a personification of human characteristics, it's nature. We see the thunder, we see the lightning, we see the majesty of the heavens, we compare that with Zeus, whereas with Thor, that's not a point that our ancestors, the Norse pagans and the Edas, say is a characteristic of him. It's simply one of the ways that we reflect his personality as the most dominant, the most loud. So which is it? Is it Thor? Is it Zeus? Is it Hashem, Allah, or Yahweh? One of these things does not belong. One of these things is not like the other. In fact, all of these things are not like the other. We go east to our Hindu friends and note that their perceptions of gods and demons are completely superficial, and that the distinctions that the Norse pagans would make between elves, dwarves, Azir, Vanir, and the other entities that are referred to as gods are entirely different, while Hindus would note the spiritual is all one and the same under the moniker of Shakti, if you will. You then go to the West and see the Aztecs and their views of the gods. And not only are their names impronunciable, no disrespect intended, well, they're all dead anyway, so I don't think I'd, they're bothering anybody, but even more so how you were to observe them religiously. There were cults of human sacrifice, like the Emerald Tablets of Hermes in Greek culture. Norse pagans had a more carnal approach towards things, but the Aztecs turned human sacrifice and ritualistic murder into an art form. Mm -hmm. And if one of those gods is worshipped through that way, in fact, all of those gods are worshipped in a sense that way, why are the Greeks, why are the Norse, why are the Hebrews, why are the Muslims, why are the Indians not getting that memo? These are fundamentally in conflict with one another, not just in their attributes, but what the religions themselves claim about what those names mean. Yeah. So if I go to India and I note the nature of some of these demons, uh, the, the, the monkey god, uh, Sun Wukong, and I compare it, that name and its significance, to the Hebrew god, Hashem, and note 
there are differences. One is polytheistic, one is monotheistic, one is mischievous, the other is virtuous. One is essentially only exists as an amusing story to get his own tail caught on fire and burn down villages of demons, which, by the way, I have complete respect for. Yahweh annihilates the armies of the enemies just by showing up. Which of them is true? Because these two are in fundamental conflict with one another. Does Allah love the non-believers? Does Allah hate the non-believers, according to Islam? He does. But according to Judaism, Christianity, he doesn't. Which is it? These are in fundamental conflict with one another. Right. So if we disrespect religious worldviews enough to overgeneralize them, dismiss and disregard and undermine everything that they say about themselves, then sure, you can say that all religions basically teach the same God. They only differ on little things like the nature of God, heaven, hell, the devil, morality, the afterlife, virtue in this life, virtue in the next life, our purpose before, during, and after this life, and on it goes. Real, sarcastically spoken, superficial things like that. But if you respect these religions enough to actually take seriously what they claim about about themselves, then you realize one of us could be right, both of us could be wrong, but we can't all be right. And that's where the idea of universalism falls apart. You have to disrespect them and dismiss what they actually say in order to harmonize what is supposedly being said about all natures and that there is a divine, there is a supernatural. Because guess what? You claim that there is a God that you worship from your atheist friend, you are in disagreement with every single one of them. You believe that there is no God. So which is it? None or one or infinity? You can't have all three. Right. Yep. And the only thing I'd add to that is uh, the, the thing that really settles uh, the issue for me is this. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Now, if all religions were just different labels for the same God, what Jesus is saying is completely nonsensical. He should have said, well, just sincerely believe uh, whatever cultural understanding you have about God, and I'm sure you'll be fine. And, and most people believe that, that uh, sincerity is the queen of virtues. And if you uh, worship something sincerely, uh, then, uh, then you're going to be fine when it's all said and done. Interesting, Jesus had a conversation with a woman at, the, at a well who was a Samaritan, and the Samaritans traced part of their lineage back to the Jews, but they had intermarried with non-Jews and picked up uh, parts of paganism and Judaism and put it in a wearing blender and put it on puree. Uh, Jesus said to this woman, uh, we worship what we know, you, don't, you worship what you don't know, for salvation is of the Jews. Uh, you know, in other words, uh, you know, Jesus laid that out, and this woman said, well, I suppose when Messiah is come, he will reveal all things to us. And Jesus said to her directly, I who am speaking to you am he. Uh, what Jesus was saying is the truth about God is exclusive. It's not uh, just all embracing. Uh, one truth claim by definition excludes the other. And the minute that Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father, well, he didn't say he has seen me has seen Brahman. Uh, he has seen me has seen Allah. He has seen me, you know, has seen Krishna. Uh, no, he said that there is one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Uh, God himself in Isaiah said, uh, you know, or, uh, is there any other God besides me? I know not one. Uh, so either the God of the Bible is correct 
and all of these <coughs> kind of pantheistic truth claims are wrong, or the pantheistic truth claims are wrong and the God of the Bible is incorrect. But if the God of the Bible is incorrect, the pantheistic truth claims incorrect because it lumps Christianity and Judaism in with the rest of the symbols you see on the coexist bumper sticker. So you can't have it both ways. Yeah. Jesus kind of settled it. He sure did. So, yeah. yeah. Someone said to me when Jesus said, I am the way, he meant that in the sense like Jesus was the way for him, just like I would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life, like you would say that you are the way, like the only way to get to the Father is by yourself. But that doesn't line up with anything else Grammar. that you taught <laughs> on that. Yeah. Like you're, that you're your own way to heaven. You're your own way. I am my way. Jesus said he well, is his way. Well, you know, once again, let's go, as, as they used to say, let's, let's go to the replay. Uh, what question was Jesus answering when he made that statement, mm. the famous I am the way, the truth, and life statement? Well, one of his disciples, a disciple named Thomas, said, uh, Lord, uh, we don't know where you're going and how can we know the way? Jesus has just said, I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Uh, Jesus was saying he's prepared a place for us to live with him forever. And uh, Thomas said, we don't know where you're going and how can we know the way? We, how can we know the way? Right. Not how you, Jesus, could know the way, yeah. but how could we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Yeah. And then he backed up that claim by saying, if you don't believe that, and the basis of what I've told you, believe on the fact that I've, you've seen signs, including people being raised from the dead in his ministry. Right. I'd say somebody has power over life and death. Pretty impressive truth claim. So Yeah, yeah. I, I agree with that. Yeah, <laughs> but, but he wasn't saying, well, this is, you know, when I'm saying it works for me, and maybe it'll work for you. Right. No, <laughs> the disciples were saying, how can we get to where you're going to be? How can we get to heaven? He said, I am it. Yep. Faith and trust in me is it. Right, so, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, great, thank you. Uh, thanks for that question um, from Tom, right? Yes, from Tom, thank you. From Tom's friend. Appreciate that, Tom. Tom's friend, yeah, hope that helps Asking you. Asking for a friend. That's right, yeah, sure you are. <laughs> <laughs> hope that helps you out with, with him or her. Uh, question from David, what would your response be to a couple that doesn't live together but sleeps together every so often and says it's okay because they aren't having sex. So a couple, they're not married, um, they're not living together, but they occasionally have a sleepover, I guess, but they're not actually having sexual intercourse. What would be your response to that? My response probably would be, I was born at night, but not last night. <laughs> Even if we pretend. Okay, let's, let's, let's give the benefit grant, of the doubt. Let's grant the premise is correct yeah yeah um there's uh, two <laughs> two main problems with this. <laughs> first of all um some translations of first thessalonians 522 note abstain from even the appearance of evil most and i think it's a more valid translation abstain from all forms of evil and i've had these conversations before with people and it's the same principle of living together before marriage as long as and since we're not actually being intimate and on and on it goes when you have to make these upset obsessions or e exceptions to the obvious obsessions too yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh these you know i protest too much on what's clearly going through everyone's mind first of all you're in a dating relationship that implies that there is some form of attraction which isn't wrong but there is a context in which everything ought to be acted upon and noting that within marriage the kind of covenant that that's supposed to include is commitment which of course sexual intimacy should be participated in 
regularly and with great gusto and pleasure. But if, on the other hand, you're putting yourself in a position where not wrong things, but the right thing in the wrong way, place, and time, and potentially person could be, you're, and this is the issue, putting yourself in a position where a lot of stupid things can take place, not just in regards to sexuality, but certainly including that. So when we're talking about the difference between doing something foolish and doing something that's immoral or evil, the lines obviously can be drawn in certain places, but the subtleties, I think, point out the whole issue of why would you put yourself in that position in the first place? For instance, it's foolish to play the deathbed conversion game, right? Where evil and foolishness meet is saying, well, I'm going to put off salvation. There's the evil. There's the rejection of conviction of the Holy Spirit until my deathbed. That's foolish because you're working with information you don't have. And the illustration's often made, how do you know that the last thing you see in this life won't be your loved ones holding your hand, but the words GMC and a steel metal grill coming at your face at 45 to 60 miles an hour? You don't know that. Uh, I don't know what the kilometer range is, but you get the idea. If you're in the Autobahn, it's probably 200, but that's another issue. Uh, If on the other hand, you're noting foolishness for its own sake, doing something that's not immoral, but could put you in a position where immoral things or even unfortunate things can take place like this. Is this a place where that kind of intimacy would take place? Yes. Are you both in a position where you are seeing each other in that light? Yes. Is that wrong in of itself? No, but putting yourself in positions where evil can take place is foolish, Mm. and we want to avoid that as much as possible. Taking the translation decisions on 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 22, I would think that both would be included in this, that it's putting on the appearance of evil and it's a form of evil by putting yourself in a dumb position knowingly. If you want to be smart, then A, be aware of your own weaknesses, that this is something that I would want to act upon, but I want to take steps to do the right thing by each other anyway in the relationship. And secondly, and even more importantly, that as God is the foundation of this relationship, he has more right to dictate the lines of our relationship, both during and before marriage, because those habits don't have an off switch. If that is your standard before and during marriage, then I think you're much better off than going, well, it is kind of a dumb situation, but we're still being smart. You know, we've set boundaries with each other. We we pinky swore. It's foolish. But if on the other hand, you're saying, well, is it evil? No, but that doesn't mean necessarily that it's the right thing to do either. Don't be the fool by putting yourself in those foolish situations. And I think you're better off than the person who's saying, it's a foolish situation, but it's not evil yet. Take my word for it. That's why we're laughing. Yeah. Right. Well, the other thing I would ask a person in that says, in all seriousness, and a couple of issues come up here. Uh, first of all, for younger people, I would say, okay, you've moved in together. You seem to want to have a life together. Why don't you want to honor God by giving this relationship over to him and making it permanent? Well, you know, there's a lot of hemming and hawing and you know sometimes they'll say things about finances and things along this line Mm -hmm. Uh, but the the long and the short is there's a lack of commitment there on one of two levels either there's a lack of commitment in terms of the relationship with each other it's sort of a try before you buy situation 
you know, and I mean, let's face it, yeah. the average non-believer out there is, well, you wouldn't buy a car without taking it out for a test drive, would you? Well, you know, we've reduced uh, the the most God-honoring, uh, God-glorifying relationship we can have to something like uh, buying a Toyota. Yeah. I'm not sure that's honoring to the Lord or something that he'd really uh, endorse. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and so when uh, a... A, they go well, you know, um, you know, we know we're okay and all this. Stuff. Well, great, but do your neighbors, you know, do your right. neighbors know? Oh, you go to church and you're living under the same roof. Um, well, we don't sleep with each other. Remember the giggling and hooing and hawing we had here. What do you think a non-believer is going to do about that? They go, oh yeah, those Christians are just hypocrites. They talk yeah. a good game, but they have the same uh, indistinguishable morality. So we are. We're called to shine as lights in this world, to be different from this world. And so, you know, the, the big question I would say is not only do you have a commitment to each other? Because you go, well, you know, we're really not sure. Well, are you really sure about that? Because inevitably, and believe me, I've had to clean up the mess of some of these, uh, the aftermath of these things. One person really thought this was going to eventually lead to the altar. Right. One person thought this was gonna be a lifetime commitment. Usually the and, girl. And uh, the other person, meh, well, I didn't make any promises, so yeah. on I go. And people's hearts get broken, their ability to trust in future relationships gets damaged. You know, the list goes on and on as far as the consequences that goes. The other part of this that is really interesting uh, that uh, comes up quite a bit now is a result of the fact that we have this tide of boomers, uh, people that were born in the baby boom generation getting older. Yeah. And uh, boy, uh, on more than one occasion, I've had uh, elderly people, you know, beyond the age of 65 where Social Security and Medicare and benefits along that line kicks in. And they'll say, um, we can't afford to get married because if we get married, then that affects our government benefits mm. and we can't afford it. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so by living together and not being married sometimes they'll even say you know could i just have a church wedding right and not a uh, a civil wedding yeah. you know where we can be honoring before god well yeah. once again um we're playing fast and loose with the truth there when we do something like this yeah you know the scripture says that we are to honor the the governing powers that are involved we're to, to keep the laws uh, as they've been constituted and when I say there's a lack of commitment there, uh, one of the things that I bring up, and it's tough for people to hear this, uh, but you know, I, I have to say it. You know, do you believe that God has led you into this relationship? That He is at the center of this relationship? Say, oh yeah, absolutely. We want to honor God, and we want to have our church wedding, and all this stuff. Well, um, what makes you think then that God won't meet your needs? If you take a step of faith, instead of putting your faith in the Social Security Administration, yeah. you put your faith in God to meet your needs, he's going to take care of you. Mm. He's going to meet your needs according to his riches and glory if you honor him, if you put him first. Well, it's not as easy as all of that. Well, you know, when, you, when people say that, they, in essence, put their cards on the table. Um, they have more faith and trust in the government than they do in the Lord. Yeah. You know, and I would say that if uh, that's what's going on, uh, moving in together, uh, you know, e even if you say, well, we prayed about it and, and we felt okay about it, I just don't think it's going to be something that God is going to honor long term. And uh, you go against something that runs against your conscience. Uh, 
um, boy, you set yourself up for shipwreck in your walk with God. Yeah. Because you know you look at each other, and, the, and, and this is what it comes down to, is trust. As you look at each other after you made a decision like that, and you know you've sort of you know been looking for a loophole, and you know that you've sort of, you know, and, and then the thought starts playing in the back of your mind. Well, if this person wasn't really trustworthy or above board or a person of integrity regarding how this relationship began, how can I really have confidence they're going to be a person of integrity and above board going forward? Right. Um, boy, if you don't have implicit trust in the other person entering yeah. into marriage, uh, you're setting yourself up for a peck of trouble. That's all I can say. Yeah. So, but a lot of times this question does, you know, we just think about, you know, these kids today and wanting to move in and all this other stuff and hooking up and all that. And that's certainly part of it. And Sean, I think you dealt with that, you know, really well. But the other interesting thing is, uh, man, oh man, you would not believe how many people will, you know, that we talk to introduce somebody as their partner. Uh, right. These days, even in church. Yeah. You know, so yep. you go, well, let's talk about marriage. Yeah. Let's talk about what it's a picture of. Christ and the church when he gave himself for her he was that utterly and totally committed without reservation without playing loopholes yeah. um he gave himself for us right. uh and that's what marriage is to illustrate so yeah yeah makes sense absolutely thank you for that uh thank you david for that question hope that helps you out there was a question from mac d uh he asked what is the uh kabar k-a-b-a and could it be there's two A's. evil? There's two A's. Okay, Kabbalah. Is that a is, Muslim does he, temple? Does he mean yeah. that or Kabbalah? I don't think so. Okay, but go ahead. Uh, if it's Kabbalah, that's a school of Jewish mysticism, which they themselves would clarify quite vehemently as not divinely inspired scripture. It would be an emphasis in the terms of uh, another individual who won't be named, but in Jewish circles. Um, if they take it seriously, then they'd be the town stoner. I'll just put that, though. That, that out there. But uh, if we're talking about the Kaaba, uh, the Muslim shrine that was actually co-opted and stolen, and I say stolen because it was taken by force and turned into a Muslim shrine from the pagans who had originally been there before the time of Islam, um, all of the ceremonies surrounding it are pagan, but they say it's pure monotheism now when we do it because Muhammad said so. Uh, the rituals that are involved there were all taken from pagans, whether it's running between the two hills and noting Hagar searching for water for Ishmael. Uh, don't know how she made it that far down south, but we'll just leave that as it may. The uh, Zamzam well and the supernatural properties, they idolatrously commit to it. The stoning of the three statues in a jab against uh, Christianity and the Trinity. The... Um, yeah, all, on and on it could go. But if you want a good description of all of the ins and outs and history behind it, I'd recommend the resources provided by Hatun Tosh, Jay Smith, and David Wood, where they have gone through the ritual surrounding the Kaaba. You can go to Inside the Kaaba, which is an older film that was uh, recorded during the time of Nabil Qureshi's ministry. You can note uh, Jay Smith's histories of the Kaaba, the Qiblas, which is the directions of prayer and so forth, all centered around bowing to the Kaaba. But I think the most straightforward answer, too, is the Kaaba evil. It's it's idolatry, pure and simple. The Kaaba is a little 
Borg cube, basically, that houses this black stone that supposedly fell from heaven. Now, it was common practice for pagans in Arabia to find stones or gatherings of mud that looked peculiar and to worship them as embodiments or reminders of something in the heavens. And if they found a meteorite, which is what they believed the black stone of the Kaaba to be, then they think, oh yeah, this was sent down from heaven. And there's even racial overtones in noting that it was pure white when it came from heaven, but in absorbing the sins of the world, it turned black. And that in kissing this stone, you're uh, forming some sort of connection to the afterlife in that way. All Muslims around the world are required to pray to this stone, which according to the book of Deuteronomy would see them stoned for idolatry. And then of course, when uh, you see the overwhelming majority of Muslim practices. It's either co-opted paganism, but called Islamic monotheism, and they'll cut your head off if you disagree, or just hand wave and say, well, you do it too, and then mischaracterize something fundamental about another religion. Point being made is this, it's a center for idolatry. It's the biggest manifestation of idolatry and associating something, an object, with the sort of treatment and reverence that would belong only to God. And it's coming from people who literally thrive on hypocrisy and accusing all the nations of being pagans and polytheists while they are literally worshiping at a pagan shrine and circling it like the polytheist in honor of the celestial beings that were supposed to be gods and goddesses. Explain that to me. But the point being made is this. It's a housing center for idolatry. It's a motivational center and a huge tourist attraction that attracts some very unpleasant people. Uh, the sexual molestation that comes there would make the Catholic uh, scandals and pedophilia pale by comparison, and that happens every single year in what's called the Hodge. So, um, yeah, don't recommend it. It's very evil, not only in what it produced, but what it represents, but noting that as well, tying this back to the gospel and the Bible in some way, when it comes to man's rebellion against God, when we read Romans 1 and note they treat the incorruptible or the corruptible things like four-footed animals, birds, and creeping things as if it was like the incorruptible, like the divine, this is man's natural default state. And Muslims are no more lost than the compromised Christian, than the average pagan or non-religious individual. They're all people who are looking for something in this life to be some representation or reminder that they're okay. And whether it's gathering baraka or bidda, trying to outweigh your good and bad deeds in Islam, those prayers are an attempt to offset that. The Kaaba is this constant reminder to Muslims that they have to reverence even this small connection to paradise because it's a carrot on the stick dangled farther than any of them could reach. Even Muhammad himself said that he didn't know what Allah was going to do with him. His companion said, if I had one foot in paradise, I would still fear Allah's deception. He may be knocking me down into hell just for the fun of it. If that's your kind of God, then you can see why these people are so passionate, so reverent, and even, dare I say, sincere in their desire to observe any ritual that their founder, their prophet, uh, Muhammad, set as a guidance for them because they are just that desperate. This is what they acknowledge as spiritual reality. The only solution to a lie is with the truth. They need to know the grace and the gospel that God has come down to us, not in a stone, but as a man, that he isn't absorbing their 
sins through some racially overtoned osmosis, but by he who knew no sin, becoming sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The Kaaba is not a means of salvation or redemption for them any more than their daily prayers. But Jesus is an efficable sacrifice for all sins for all time, and that's what they're looking for in that stone by bowing down to it. We worship the God man. They worship a rock. Yeah. And that's what needs to be understood as the difference, that they're serving a God that doesn't want to save them, that wants them to eventually appease him in saving themselves, according to the whims of a 7th century caravan robber and child rapist. But we worship the God who became a man in a moment of history, who demonstrated not what they attribute to a stone, but what he demonstrated in a moment of history. So, yeah, it's evil, but it is an inversion of the gospel that I think might tie into better conversations. And just as another side note, because I'm sure we'll get complaints from the manager at Goodwill from this, um, don't talk to Muslims like this unless they start it. I'm speaking to my brothers and sisters in Christ here, and you need to be quite frank and honest about what they're turning to for their salvation, which is why I made those comments. But make sure that if you're talking to someone who believes these things, uh, referencing Muhammad as a pedophile and rapist, while it is true, does not help further the conversation. I would agree. <laughs> yes. With all of it. <laughs> yes, generally, yeah. generally speaking, yep. I would agree on that. Um, so yes, MACD, uh, evil. Indeed. Thank you for your question. A question from Yari. Did the Apostle Paul die, or was he still alive when he was stoned? And I think he's Which time? talking about was he present in his body or out of body? Well, a lot of people will speculate as to whether Paul died. It's referring to the incident that took place at Lystra, where we saw Paul and Barnabas go, and, and uh, the Lord did a tremendous healing work. He healed a man who was born lame. And the people were so blown away by this that uh, they thought that, uh, that Barnabas was Zeus and that Paul was Mercury uh, because he was the, the spokesman, Zeus's mouthpiece, if you will. Uh, they were so convinced of this that they went and got uh, the high priest from the temple of Zeus. And by the way, Lystra was known as a center of Zeus worship. If you came into the city gates, you'd find an ugly sneering image of Zeus looking down at you. Uh, that was considered one of the features of this place. And there was also a legend that uh, Zeus and Mercury had shown up before in disguise. Uh, the people had treated them shamefully except for one couple, and so they wiped out the whole city uh, and uh, allowed this uh, couple as their reward to be two trees on the outside of the temple of Zeus. Mm-hmm. So uh, Paul and Barnabas see what's going on here. They tear their robes and they said, uh, you know, the Lord who created the heavens and the earth, uh, he is the one you're going to worship. He's calling you to turn away from these worthless things. Well, Paul's adversaries uh, saw a great opportunity here. Uh, They thought that they could very easily turn the superstitions of the people in Lystra against Paul and Barnabas, and so they did. And lo and behold, almost uh, overnight, public opinion changed, and uh, the people of Lystra dragged Paul out of the city and stoned him and left him for dead. Now, there is nothing in the text specifically that says that Paul died. It just says that he was left for dead at this particular time. You know, and, and so, you know, again, uh, you know, we are told, however, uh, when the disciples gathered around him, this is Acts chapter 14 and verse 20, uh, he rose up and went into the city. That's all we're told. So there are those who will say, yeah, Paul died then, that was probably then that he got his vision of the third heaven that is described in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 
Uh, could Paul have died then? Could he have gotten this vision uh, there? Possibly. We just are not told. And, uh, you know, one of the things that we kind of caution against is building a doctrine out of uh, whole cloth, if you will, based upon something that's not specifically said. Where the Bible speaks, we should speak with full authority. Where it's silent, we should probably be humble enough to say, possible, we don't know, don't have all the information, we'll ask when we get there. Uh, so, you know, suffice it to say, whether Paul was dead or he was so savaged by this stoning he was left for dead, it was not a pleasant experience. No. And the amazing thing is he gets up and he goes right back into town. And speaking of working with information we do have, what would you say to those who would say, well, that wasn't Paul who had the vision of paradise. He speaks of someone else. I'd say there's no evidence of that. I mean, the only thing that we see in that particular context in 2 Corinthians is Paul making a defense of his apostleship from the so-called super apostles who were saying that they were uh, better than Paul and so on. Uh, he talks about uh, that uh, this boasting is foolishness when he presents his spiritual resume. And then he talks about visions uh, that, uh, that he had received. And then he begins to talk about seeing third heaven. Which would make you know? no sense if he was providing a defense of himself, goes on to mention a vision someone else had. And right. then all the way in back in verse 5 says, of such one I will not boast except in my infirmities. Yeah. So he's not distancing himself from the person because they're two different people. He's describing the vision as something he had, but it's not necessary to prove his credentials. Yeah. 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 Great. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, yes, Yahweh, thank you. Thanks for being a regular on the show, and I hope that helps you out. Thank you for your question. We're coming up on the end of the show here, about four and a half minutes. Question from uh, Letty. Uh, kind of a two-part question. What do you say to a person that says the Apostle Paul was homosexual or asexual and that homosexu homosexuality isn't a sin? And the follow-up question was, was Paul married before he was divorced? Um, was, sorry, was Paul married before was he divorced or his wife died? Or was it the grace of God that he was able to talk about marriage being single, always single? So, Well, why don't you Paul deal with the single, second one? Was Paul married before? Um, we don't know. Um, chances are he was, traditionally, really? uh, because to be a Pharisee of the Pharisees, it was considered de rigueur uh, to be married. Uh, the commandment to be fruitful and multiply was one of the first commandments that God gave to his people. And one of the things you've got to say about Pharisees was they were stickler about your commandments. They didn't just brush them off. So... Uh, the idea of Paul being married beforehand, probably likely what happened, Paul's wife isn't mentioned. He makes a, an oblique mention of the idea of if we had a wife, could we not take her along with us like Peter and the rest of the, the other apostles? Uh, seemingly at that point, uh, he had had no wife. Uh, once again, we're speculating here. We're not told yay or nay, it would seem rather extraordinary to me that if Paul did have a wife, uh, it would be, uh, it wouldn't have been mentioned at some point, say in mm -hmm. Acts, along these lines. Yeah. Uh, Paul seems to indicate in uh, the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that he had the gift of singleness. You know, in other words, he didn't feel a compulsion to be married and felt that this gave him greater freedom 
to serve the Lord uh, in that respect. He said that uh, in that respect, it's uh, kind of a superior uh, arrangement because your interests aren't divided in a crazy world like the one that we live in. But he said each one has their gift. If you marry, you haven't sinned. If you remain single, uh, you haven't sinned either at that point. But from the Jewish traditional background of being a Pharisee of Pharisees concerning the righteousness which is in law, Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, blameless, um, I would uh, find it very, uh, very difficult to believe that at one point he was not married. As far as uh, uh, the second question goes, yeah, the first um, question. Real, real um, quick, um, we can deal with this perhaps more tomorrow, but the idea of reading the modern term and moniker that asexual, meaning abstinent, and that homosexual being, oh, well, he of course didn't have a wife, so how could he function apart from sexual practice or identity? It's coming from a worldview that assumes that the only thing we have to find our identity in is our sexual interests. And we read in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, that Paul is not only aware of homosexual practices and also willing to confess if he had sins in any areas, he was more than willing to be accountable for his covetousness, and noting his struggles with that, mm. did not determine his identity based on his pursuit of pleasure, but said, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, homosexuals, sodomites, extortioners, or violers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but notice how he determines identity, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of Christ. His ultimate destination wasn't based on his pursuit of pleasure, but the pursuit of his ultimate master, his creator. He did not seek his identity through the, um, well, I, I won't get into the graphic stuff, but let's just note, put that to rest. If you're going to say that homosexuality isn't a sin, then you need to provide two things. First, one, a positive example, not read into, but presented plainly in the text of homosexual relationships in the Bible in a positive sense. And also, secondly, make sure that you answer adequately the times where scripture notes it as a deviation of God's intention for marriage. That's the point. Thank you. Lady, we'll deal with this more tomorrow. Question. Yeah, okay, we can jump back on that tomorrow. Thanks for being with us on A Reason for Hope. Stick around in 30 minutes. We'll be live again for our Wednesday evening service here at uh, Calvary Christian Fellowship. We'll be in the book of Ezekiel talking about worship, as you mentioned right. earlier. So stick around for that, or we'll see you back tomorrow, same time, same place. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.